Our scripture reading is in Philippians, Paul's letter to the uh, with, with Timothy to the, to the people there. And we're at verse 3, going on to verse 11. I thank my God, says Paul, every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to feel this way about you or about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. On the screen, uh, if we can have it up please Andy, is a picture of Rembrandt's painting St Paul in prison. It shows Paul as an old man sitting on his bed surrounded by books. One of his sandals has come off, uh, perhaps to ease the pain of a bunion, someone says, more likely I think to symbolise his confinement. The prophet Isaiah says how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, proclaiming peace, announcing news of righteousness, bringing the message that God is king. That's what Paul spent the latter part of his life as a Christian doing, walking across the Mediterranean world with the good news of Jesus. But now he is imprisoned in a cell. He's not walking anywhere. And that sense of confinement might be expressed by having one of his sandals off. Next to him is a sword. Clearly Rembrandt wasn't looking for realism in this picture. The last thing you'd leave in a prisoner's cell is a sword. It is then a symbol, a highly ambiguous one. Tradition has it that Paul was beheaded with a sword. And so having a sword next to him there could well represent the reality that he was under the sentence of death. It's worth remembering that when he wrote to the Philippians, he knew that there was a real possibility he would never leave prison alive. But in the letter to the Ephesians, he talks about the word of God being the sword of the Spirit. So maybe the sword represents the scriptures. I'm quite sure that the book on his lap and the book next to him would have been the Jewish scriptures. So the sword may be making the point that in the situation of extreme adversity, he was arming himself with the word of God. There's also the point that though he's only wearing one sandal and he can no longer leave his cell to take the good news of Jesus to people in person, in his letters, which he's writing there, he is continuing to proclaim the word of God and make Jesus known. In this case, rather than the pen being mightier than the sword, the sword represents the power of the pen. The power of God's word released through Paul's pen as he writes his letters. And he's clearly writing uh, one of his letters from prison. 
Philippians was one of four prison epistles, the others being Philemon, Colossians and Ephesians. His pen is in his left hand. He's clearly musing over what he should write. But if we were to suppose that Philippians is the letter he's composing at this point in time, then we can be sure he's not simply thinking about what to write. He is praying for the people he is writing to. Because he says, every time I think of you, I thank God for you. Every time I pray for you, I pray for you with joy. Because of their partnership with him in the gospel from the very beginning. And speaking as a minister, one of the things I I value and treasure about Bright Road is the sense of partnership in the gospel that I feel I enjoy with you. It's not a case of we've got Tim and we can leave it to him now, nor a case now we've got Tim and Jack so they will get on with it. It is a sense of partnership. We are working together in the service of Christ and that is vital for the success of any ministry. In Paul's case, he knew that Philippi was the first church which he'd started on mainland Europe. And when he left that region and went elsewhere, they were the only church, actually, that kept in touch with him, that continued to support him financially. And that meant a huge amount to him. And now that he was in prison, they still kept in touch with him, sending one of their own number, Epaphroditus, to bring him their support. And Paul was writing this letter to the Philippians, at least in part, to thank them for that latest expression of their concern and the practical help they've been to him. So Paul says, I always pray with joy for you because of your fellowship or partnership in the gospel from the very beginning until now. It had continued, more or less, through the years. It's a prayer that flows out of a deeply committed friendship and fellowship and actually flows back into that relationship again to strengthen that relationship as Paul shares his heart with them. It's difficult to tell whether whether Paul feels so warmly towards them because he has them in his heart or whether they have him in theirs. It's the same with remembering of each other. Does he thank God every time he remembers them or does he thank God every time they remember him? Despite the clarity offered by the NIV, Paul's language is a bit ambiguous at this point. In practice, it looks like he remembered them and they remembered him. He had them in his heart as they had him in theirs. And because they had such a high regard for each other and warmth of feeling towards each other, they expressed that in their prayers for one another. Because effective prayer flows out of a sense of relationship and flows back into it again to strengthen that relationship. Paul, sitting there alone in prison, isn't lost in his thoughts. The longing in his heart for the Philippians is expressed in a heartfelt prayer for them. And they needed his prayers because they were struggling. Life was tough. They were suffering for the gospel as Paul himself was suffering. He talks about them sharing with God's grace, sharing in God's grace with him as he is in chains and as he defends and confirms the gospel. That could just mean that they were identifying with him in their minds and supporting him in prayer as he was in prison for standing up for Jesus. But it could go deeper than just praying for him in his needy situation. It could mean that some of them actually were in prison as he himself was in prison. It could mean that some of them were suffering for actively defending and confirming the gospel of Jesus Christ as he did. 
Their level of fellowship with him didn't just extend to warm thoughts and identifying with him and feeling for him and praying for him and sending him support because they embraced the gospel he brought to them. They were paying the price for being followers of Jesus as Paul himself was. Fellowship in the gospel. Fellowship in suffering. Sharing in grace. And on the one hand, he was understandably worried and anxious about them because he cared for them, he heard that life was difficult, he felt helpless because he couldn't go and visit them. But on the other hand, he was putting his trust in God for them, declaring himself completely confident that God, who had began such a good work in them, would bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. God has started, so he will finish doesn't leave his work half complete. And that perhaps can give us an insight into how prayer works. We have concerns, we have worries, we have anxieties for situations and for those whom we love, and that is completely natural. But as Christians, we are in the privileged position of being able to place those whom we love, our concerns for them, our anxieties for them, into the hands of a God who is completely faithful and trustworthy. That is prayer. Father, I place into your hands the things I cannot do, the person I would be, the situations we care for, the people we are concerned about. Praying is bundling it up and placing it in the hands of God and entrusting those people, those situations, those cares, concerns into the hands of a God who is faithful and is trustworthy. Paul prays specifically for the Philippians that their love would abound more and more with all knowledge and depth of insight and discernment. According to the New International Version, he wants them to be able to understand what is best. But a better translation perhaps might be, he wants them to understand what really matters, what really counts, what is of paramount importance. That's where knowledge and depth of insight and discernment and understanding come into play in the ability to get your priorities right. St. Augustine said that discernment or prudence is love making a right distinction between what helps it towards God and what might hinder it. It can be easy to get priorities wrong. Those of you who work in business may have seen this image or, or something like it. Are you lonely? Don't like working on your own? Hate making decisions? Then call a meeting. You can see people, draw flowcharts, feel important. Form subcommittees, impress your colleagues, make meaningless recommendations all on company time. <laughs> Meetings, the practical alternative to work. <laughs> Sums up how easy it is to get bogged down in procedures that never have any worthwhile outcomes. I am I'm sure I'm not the only person to have sat in a meeting where everybody is avidly concentrating on a subject which, if it's not pointless, is actually of negligible importance. Churches are good at this, particularly. My worst, what, one of my worst memories of a church meeting is where we'd almost got to the end of the meeting and someone asked for a paltry sum of money so that they could replace the head of a broom which had gone missing, because without it they couldn't clean the church. I'm not sure the subject needed raising at, raising at a church meeting at all, and it was quite an easy decision to say, yes, have the money, buy a new broom if you need it. But there was a long and involved discussion about 
who'd seen or used the broom last? <laughs> Whether keeping it in that particular cupboard was a safe place to keep the broom. How long would it have been missing and what might have happened to it? On Paul's litmus test about having the discernment to recognise and concentrate on the things that really mattered, I think we failed that night. So in effect, Paul is praying for the Philippians that they would get their priorities right. They knew that love was important. They were spot on in that respect. But their love needed to be informed by a knowledge and a depth of insight so that they could focus on what mattered the most, so that their love would be expressed in ways that were helpful. Why was so concerned, Paul so concerned that their love should have this depth of understanding? Because he knew that as a church, yes, they loved him. As a church, they were concerned for him in prison. Yet he wants them to understand that what really matters is not what happens to him. What really counts is that the gospel of Jesus Christ should continue to be proclaimed. That's where he wants their priorities and focus to lie. Above and beyond his own safety or his own well-being, he wants them to focus on the proclamation of the good news of Jesus. And he says there are good sides to being in prison because everybody knows I'm here for the sake of the gospel. And his overriding aim was that God should be exalted in his body either by the manner in which he lives or by the manner in which he dies. So he thanks God for them every time he thinks of them. and He's grateful for their fellowship with him. Except that isn't quite what he says. He says, I pray for you with joy because of your partnership or fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Important as their relationship is between the apostle and the church, it is a fellowship grounded in the good news of Jesus Christ. And Paul wants them to know that if the worst happens and he gets the chop, they still have the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they are to continue true to it, to continue defending it, continue living by it and making it known. That for him is the most important thing. Because ministers come and ministers go. I mean, Jack has left the church in Bake Up to come down here and they will miss her dreadfully. The important thing is that they continue working and serving and living out the gospel of Jesus Christ and proclaiming it there. And when it comes to us here in Brighton Road today, and we look to apply Paul's prayer to ourselves, we need to remember that it is important that our love abounds more and more in knowledge and depth of insight and understanding so that we can concentrate and focus on the things that really matter. And it has to be about our being a community of people together whose life demonstrates the good news of Jesus. Because we are God's shop window. When people look at us, we are how they will perceive God. Because they can't see God. They can't see Jesus. They won't read their Bibles. But they look at us to get some inkling of what it's all about. What does it mean to be part of a group of people who are bound to each other in the grace and peace of Jesus Christ? Our calling is to demonstrate that. How much of our programme and activity are orientated around making Jesus known? And how much of what we do is I put simply rearranging the furniture, but that kind of does John and Nigel down because a huge amount of furniture rearranging goes on and I don't want to uh, give the wrong impression that doesn't matter because it does. But how much of what we do actually is focused on making Jesus known? That has to be our priority. Living our lives openly 
for Jesus, letting it become known that we are Christians and commending him by how we live and what we say so that we're known as people of faith. Paul wants us to be filled with the fruits of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Here is a picture of Gustav Klimt's pear tree, a tree completely loaded with fruit. There you are. Let that be a picture of us here at Brighton Road, filled with the fruits of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. A tree that size can't be hidden and neither should we. A tree that size has fruit ripe for picking. When people come to Brighton Road, they should be able to taste and see that the Lord is good. That's what we're about. And I'm pretty confident I speak for both Jack and myself when I say that together with you we look forward to a fruitful partnership with all of you here in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is God's priority. Let's make sure it's always ours as well. So we work together and pray for each other and witness to the gospel here in Horsham. Let's pray. A prayer by Paul Detterman. Merciful God, in your tender love, forgive us. And cause our love for you to abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So that we may be, so that we may be able to discern what is best. And may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. To your praise and glory.